Dear Lord, thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for Pastor Eric and all the great things he does as he blesses us and teaches us the word of God. And Lord, we pray that you'd bring healing to him and calmness to his heart and soul. Thank you, Lord, for what we're going to learn in Acts 14 here. May we um, be those who love the truth and love your word and are willing to be bold despite persecution as we see the apostles were in Acts 14. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Acts 14, 2 through 7. But first, let me show you a little show and tell here. This is... Um, we're, we're talking about what happens in Iconium. And this is a picture of modern Kanya. Mo- modern Kanya is built where ancient Iconia was. And so let me read the caption I have here in my notes. This was Paul's first visit to Iconium but it would later have the distinction of having been, of being visited by Paul on all three of his charted missionary journeys. By the end of the first century AD, Iconium had a Christian population. Unfortunately, there was very little to see here archeologically since the ancient city's remains are covered by the modern city of Konya. So that was where it was, but now there's a city right on top of it. And again, we know that the historicity, this is an inscription, and it was photographed at the Kanya Museum, bears the name of the ancient city, Hikonium. And one of the things that happens here. Um, what it says here is from Derby. Derby is two stops away from Paul and Barnabas' present location, but this image provides a visual for what the scene might have looked like as the people of Iconium plotted to stone the visitors. If you ever go to that part of the world, you find out why you read a lot about stoning. They're everywhere. If somebody's looking for a weapon, all I got to do is look down. <laughs> they probably would nowadays. Okay, so we were on verses 2 and 3 and last week. But it says here, but the Jews who were disobedient stirred up and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. So they stayed there for a considerable time, speaking boldly, for the Lord who testified to the message of his grace granting signs and wonders to be performed through their hands now if you did we cover the idea of the gospel requiring obedience last week you know I just keep studying this I don't, I don't remember you don't know well then it won't be too redundant the obedience, the Bible speaks of the obedience of the faith and obeying the gospel. And that the, 
that the gospel has content that would confront sinners and call for a response of obedience tells you something about the nature of the gospel. Okay? And I think a lot of people don't get that. And if you look at the seeker-sensitive gospel, it's so uh, contrived, it's portrayed as something that the actual gospel of the Bible is not. If you just think of America is good at inventing things, good and bad. And certainly America invented the positive mental attitude gospel, uh, sort of related to think and grow rich type idea, or how to win friends and influence people, and how to have high self-esteem, or how to be successful, and so on. And so there's been a gospel developed that's not a true gospel, and it started particularly in America, and the nature of the seeker-sensitive is another way of describing that, and it comes in different forms, is that you're not commanding anyone to repent and believe the gospel, and there's no particular moral content to the gospel, but there is an invitation to be happy and have a better life. Okay, so let's just say somebody preaches that, which is, by the way, all the biggest churches that call themselves evangelical, the biggest growing ones, at least in our area, have some version of that, of the entertaining type message, okay? Uh, Because it doesn't require conversion. It doesn't require repentance. And so if somebody says, come to Jesus and have a happy life, what would disobedience look like? Just saying, well, I think I'm happy enough the way I am. I guess you could call that disobedient. Well, I found happiness through Hare Krishna. It's very possible that somebody might do that, but there's no moral content to it. There's simply hanging out this of fruit dangling it out there saying you could be happier than you are now. Or come to Jesus and solve problems. Come to Jesus and become rich and successful. And so such a gospel is lacking any kind of moral content and it's lacking the conviction of sin and it's lacking the idea that we need the blood atonement that the wrath of God is, is focused against our sin and that the only escape is repentance and turning to Christ and the blood of Jesus washes away sins. So I want to show you now these verses that would, I think, totally undercut any way of portraying the gospel in a seeker-sensitive mode. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, the first one is in 1 Peter 4.17. 1 Peter in verse 17. It says here, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, 
what will be the outcome for those who, notice what it says, do not obey the gospel of God. By the way, there's implied the deity of Christ because you notice the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, the gospel of grace, they're all the same thing. There's not multiple gospels. The implication is that the gospel calls for obedience. Rejecting the gospel means being disobedient to God. Does that make sense? Here's another one you can turn to. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. I'll read it. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have Peter calling it the gospel of God, and here we have it, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, showing the deity of Christ. Also, <clears throat> notice as they do not obey the gospel. What happens to those who do not obey the gospel? They face retribution. Now, it seems to me that if this is actually true and that this is something that evangelicals have always believed, which supposedly is true, then how can you portray the gospel as escaping from retribution when you don't believe there is any retribution? And how can you talk about those who do not obey the gospel of God when you have a gospel that doesn't even ask anybody to obey anything? Come and be happy and successful. Uh, yes, Brian. I find it... Yes. I find it interesting that back in the 1 Peter 4, 17... It uses the word to begin with, and just as in the Bema seat judgment, that is for the believers, but after comes the white throne judgment, which there is no hope. Yeah, so. that's, that's what they're talking about. Uh, by the way, as long as you got the mic, could you look up Acts uh, 6 and verse 7, Brian, and read it to us? Our verse is Acts 6 and verse 7. And while he's doing that, Dan, if you could look up Romans 1 and verse 5. Here's uh, Acts 6, verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Good. Notice becoming... Obedient to the faith is synonymous with believing the gospel. Okay? The faith, once for all, hand down to the saints, the faith that is the content of biblical truth, particularly about Christ and God's plan of salvation, by its very nature, in essence, is something that would call for a response. Does that make sense? And that response 
it's not a work. Here, see, here's the confusion. And we'll be talking about that as we go through the stuff that Eric's been doing in Sunday school. The confusion in the minds of a lot of people is that if something calls for obedience, therefore it must imply works. Okay? And yet we have Paul very, very clearly, and we're going to see that with the verse that Dan's going to read. For instance, in the book of Romans, saying that the gospel is to be obeyed and that salvation is by grace through faith, Ephesians 2. And so the Bible doesn't believe, and I've been reading this this last week. It's so slow going because it's hard stuff. This is the bondage of the will by Luther. And he's dealing with Rome. What's shocking about this, by the way, bondage of the will, and I'm, I have, I'm digesting this again here 30 years later, is that most evangelicals, even the more conservative ones, are in agreement with Rome. And they don't even know it. They don't even know what the Reformation is about. It's because Rome is saying, well, if you have to obey something, that, that means you're cooperating with God and making it happen. Because they were attacking Luther's doctrine of, of the solas uh, and faith alone and so on. And in this, let me just lay that one out so I get all our minds thinking about it. The obedience of the faith is this. And this is what Luther said. This is primary stuff before there was any uh, creeds and councils created by reformers. Primary stuff Luther was saying, all of those passages that command us to obey something are law that shows us our need for the gospel. In other words, God is trying by bringing forth conviction to sinners by showing the holy requirements that would bring them to the end of themselves where they would cry out to God for mercy and receive forgiveness of sins through the gospel. So when the obedience of the faith does happen, it's not because of humans' works kicked in. It's because the law did its work of showing the requirement of obedience. As Jesus said, and Luther quoted this, be perfect for God is perfect. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm lost. I'm, it's hopeless. I will come under retribution. I don't know how I'm going to escape. Dear Jesus, forgive me, cleanse me, save me. And that's the gospel having its effect on the sinner. That's all Luther was saying. And for that, Rome anathematized him. But nowadays, evangelicals anathematize people like me for preaching nothing different than what was preached at the Reformation. Because they want man to be in charge of his own destiny. And this gospel that requires obedience has a purpose of being confrontive to the sinner, showing us where we're going is headed to hell. And startling us by the conviction of the Spirit that we need Christ. Okay, let's look to Romans 1, 5. 
Through him we have received grace and apostleship to obe- or for obedience to, uh, to the faith, seeing all nations for his name. Yeah, mine says to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. So as the Gentiles come to the obedience of the faith, it brings glory to God. And that's what it says in Ephesians 1. All of these things God's done in his eternal counsel is to bring about the praise to his glory by saving Gentiles. Here's what's so important. Please get this. We don't need to be shy about proclaiming the gospel the way it is found in the Bible. We do not need to hold back from telling people there really is a hell. And that God's requiring obedience. And that we failed him in every way. But that the good news is that Jesus Christ died for sins, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. That the only hope the lost sinner ever is going to have is that Christ did for him what the sinner couldn't do for himself. And therefore, it would be offensive to God for us to hear that and say to God or to the preacher, I don't want any of that. I think I just need a little help. I'll just try harder. Rich. How many of you know the gospel is it do more and try harder? <laughs> People don't mind hearing that. Okay, go I ahead. I heard John MacArthur preach once, and he said, okay, here's, here it is. He goes, God is right here, and this is what most people in the evangelical world think. Here's God right here. Here's man. Man just a little bit below God. And so God, so man basically is his own God. They would never say that. But man can choose whether he wants to accept Christ or reject Christ. So we're basically kind of a, a clean slate. In other words, we can choose Christ or reject Christ in an, of our own ability or our own will. I found that interesting. Yeah. Now, That's what Luther yeah. was disputing with Erasmus about. No, with that same thought, in your passage, in the Thessalonian passage, Second yes. Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. I see it as congruent. Okay, obeying the gospel and knowing God, the same thing. If you don't know the gospel, how can you know God? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, uh, that's a good reading, Rich, because it's a synonymous parallel. And knowing God and obeying the gospel are going together. The only way to know God is to believe the gospel, and the gospel calls for a response. of re- Jesus said this in Luke Acts, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations. But some of the longer disputive email exchanges I've had in the last 25 years, however long we've had email, how long is it, 20-some years, is evangelicals who claim if you preach repentance, you're preaching worse. And that repentance has no place in the gospel. And the gospel is mere mental assent to facts. 
And so you lay the facts out and people say, yeah, I, I think that really happened. That's conversion. And then when there's no fruit and no change and now you just have a Christianized pagan, they create lordship as a secondary experience for people to want to do a little more. So now you need a new experience beyond that called making Jesus Lord. And then they bring that in for the second. I've debated and debated and I've been anathematized. There's people that go trolling through our site and find that I even cited John MacArthur once favorably and they anathematize me because they think that repentance means works and you shouldn't need to have nothing more than mental assent to facts. But then in which case, by the way, uh, excuse me, I'm very fresh from bending my mind around the difficult English in this book. German translated into old English. But I'm reading Luther. If that was the way it was, you didn't really need much of a reformation. Just cooperate and improve some and go through a slow process. Okay, so the faith needs to be obeyed. That's what it says. Because the people who were disobedient, what does it mean? They didn't believe. It's an anonymous idea. They didn't believe, meaning being disobedient. Uh, believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved is, is not just a vacuous statement. And it's not just calling for mental assent. It means trusting Christ instead of trusting self. Remember Jeremiah? I've cited many times. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Blessed is the man who trusts in God. There's a blessing and cursing based on who we trust. We trust ourselves to be religious, or we trust God to save lost sinners. So they stirred up and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles. So these were ones that were like Paul before his conversion, who reacted with hostility to the gospel. Paul had done that himself, so it wasn't hopeless because he was later saved. So they poisoned the mind of the Gentiles against the brothers, meaning the Christians. So they stayed there for a considerable time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be performed through their hands. So boldly is, again, a theme we've seen. I have pointed this out a number of times. Interestingly, speaking boldly in the Greek is paresiazomai, paresiazomai, and it's got that particular form of it is used nine times in the New Testament, seven in Acts. So it's a big deal in Acts. That's how you find themes. Yes, uh, Brian. Now, in the uh, American Standard, uh, New American Standard Bible, it uh, says they were there a long time speaking boldly with reliance, italicized, and uh, would that there again it would show that it wasn't of them, it was uh, uh, dependent on what God was doing. Um, okay, so I'm looking at the Greek here. Being bold, that word I mentioned, parousia zomai, epi ha kurios. And then it says, the testifying upon the word. They're making that idea from the uh, preposition epi, 
the means on. And so it has an implied depending on the Lord, epi. But epi is translated in L-E-B as for the Lord. Okay, upon the Lord, for the Lord. It's just a, a preposition, epi. So speaking boldly for the Lord or as they depend on the Lord, both things are true, who testified to the message of his grace. Now notice this. God is the one who testifies here to the message of his grace. And how did he do so? Granting signs and wonders to be performed through their hands. So notice uh, how this is portrayed. Because, again, it's amazing as they go through Acts, there's hardly anything that somebody isn't twisting in their approach. The apostles and prophets are saying that if we don't figure out how to do signs and wonders, we failed God and we're not fully preaching the gospel. The full gospel has to have signs and wonders or it's a deficient gospel. So say the full gospel people. So they say we have a deficient gospel because we're preaching repentance for forgiveness of sins and we're not doing signs and wonders assuming that if we got our act together and went to the right school and went to the schools of the prophets and took the courses that they're offering online, we could do signs and wonders. We're just dolts and we haven't figured out how to do it. I get emails about that too. I get on these lists so I know what they're saying. But it's not saying here that they learned how to do this because they went to somebody's school. Now, they would say, well, they went to the school of Jesus, but um, this is Paul Barnabas who came along in Acts. But nevertheless, this passage is saying God did the testifying and he granted or gave the signs and wonders. God is as free to do signs and wonders at any point in history as he sees fit. And he still does. I've, I've seen it. I've seen unbelievable, remarkable things that God did that I never would have expected because he saves sinners. You know, and also the circumstances, the things that happen providentially that sinners end up face to face with Christ. I've seen it many times, including my own conversion. And, uh, we're not limiting God by not jumping around and shouting and having a super loud sound system and say, bless God, we're going to have power here in this meeting tonight. Bless the Lord. Signs and wonders are coming forth. And they jump and shout and scream. and Yeah, they do all these things. And then if nothing happened, they would think, well, God didn't show up. But it's just really bad theology. But let's just see what it actually says. The signs were granted, and I think that's ditto me. Let me look. Yes, there it is. Ditto me. Um, perfect, active participle. Uh, in other words, the, uh, God did that, given through the hands of them. So the means were the apostles, particularly Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas wasn't technically an apostle, but he was sent. And God did this. 
Now, there's another passage we want to consult here. That would be Acts 4, 29 through 30. Acts 4, 29 through 30. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant, there's our word again, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. So you get the same idea, parousia, boldness. So when they were threatened earlier in Acts 4, Peter and the others, this was the same people, here now it's Paul and Barnabas, but you have the same kind of thing, and Luke is saying that the same way for a reason. Luke is telling us that what's going on later through Paul and Barnabas is what went on earlier through Peter and the other apostles that were with Jesus. All right? They are bondservants. They speak your word with all confidence. Or you could translate that else boldness while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus so there's a granting of boldness and signs that God was doing and I would say two things about this because boy did I spend a lot of parts of my life debating um, apostles prophets and various charismatic approaches to this back in the 80s. Um, I would just say this. There are unique signs of apostles. Okay? There are no new apostles of the type of the 12 and however you count them. Whether uh, you count the person they added in Acts one or whether Paul's was we know Paul has the signs of apostle and he saw the resurrected Christ that was limited and I'll talk about that and have talked about Ephesians foundation foundational apostles and prophets were at the initial giving of the new covenant through Christ and his apostles people are still sent and the term apostle is used in two ways in Acts and elsewhere in the New Testament And if you try to apply the technical term to all of them, you get the modern apostles movement, and they're in error. Because they want to have the same status as Peter and Paul and James and John and so on. So they're in error. But sometimes the term is used to mean sent one. Not in the technical sense of an apostle who saw the resurrected Christ, was taught by Christ personally and appointed by Christ as Paul was and as these others. But there are people sent, and we tend to use the term missionary in modern English. Some people mock that and say we're just cowards and we don't want to do what God said and go out and do the miracles he commanded us to do. Um, But even in the Bible, it's used in the two ways, the technical way and the functional way. Functional means sent. Technical means the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians. 
So be aware of that. And don't listen to the people say there were 70 apostles because they find, they find every time anybody was sent, there must have been an apostle. They're confusing that. Notice also that God's doing the testifying. And so God can always testify through whatever means he wants, including miraculous conversions, including things that lead to miraculous conversions. I get more emails about this one article I wrote, um, issue 78. I, I get emails now, multiple ones, every single week. They read the first page of it, and they call me, and they want help with demons. And in the article, I told a story in order to establish that I'm now a stranger to the reality of the supernatural realm. But of late, my health has gotten so much better, my memory is just filling in details of things that I hadn't thought about for decades. Uh, it's just the health that I have, uh, thanks to God's grace. So I was thinking about that initial story that gets everybody to call me. And in the initial story, we had had a meeting. This is when I was in the charismatic movement. But we'd had a meeting, and afterwards people were coming for prayer. And I was standing there with another brother after the meeting. And this uh, lady, you can, I, I, I don't remember exactly how I wrote the story, but I'll tell you how I remember it now. She, she sudden, suddenly let out a screech, and just her countenance changed, and her fingers became like this in attack mode, and she went screaming and running directly at me. And I'm just standing there. And there wasn't much time to do anything. And so I don't even know how I, this happened, but I just stood there and said something like, Stop in the name of Jesus Christ. And I just stood there, and she collapsed in front of me in a heap. And um, that was the I told that story. That's why people call because they think I have some power or something. I don't even know how and why that actually happened, other than it wasn't time to think about what you're going to do. Well, so anyhow, she had come to get some help. But here's the detail of the story that I'm thinking of now that I hadn't thought about for decades. The very next day, we had a prayer room where we would help people, pray for people. And so the next day after a night's sleep or whatever, she came to talk to me. And she said something, I think she said it's an article that I shouldn't have taken seriously because it filled me with pride. But she said, Satan is scared of you. And that, that was a bad thing for me to hear. But here's the detail that I hadn't thought about. So people are listening to this. Maybe you read that article. The thing that I hadn't thought about until recently was she was fine mentally and spiritually that next day already. She wasn't somebody who stayed there and kept needing more deliverance and more counseling and more this, that, or anything else. She was already in her right mind the next day. And she was from another state or whatever, and she says, and we prayed for her, and I expect we'll see her in heaven. I don't even know who she is or what her name was. So it didn't initiate a process of like the exorcist you see in the movie. I think that was her conversion. I never thought of that until recently. How she interpreted 
Well, she's a brand new Christian. She wouldn't know who Satan's scared of and who isn't. Well, the only thing that scares Satan is the gospel. And I did have that despite myself. But God can save her. So God can still do these things. But I interpret it wrongly. As a prideful young man in my 20s, I was thinking, I'm a great man of God, and now everybody needs me. And that's terrible. That's terrible. And it made me think of the one that we talked about in Luke. Oh, now the demons are subject to us. Remember when, what did Jesus say? Don't rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And I spent some years thinking wrongly that I had some secret to, to defeat Satan. But the defeat of Satan is the gospel. It wasn't until the 80s I figured out it always was the gospel and never be anything but the gospel. And I got out of all of that and just became a Bible teacher and a gospel preacher. So I don't have something any other gospel preacher doesn't have. And God could do the same kind of thing with any preacher, anybody passing out of track, anybody anywhere where somebody could be converted in a dramatic way. It usually doesn't happen that way. So now I'm looking back at that with my memory filled in, thanks to health, and I see that was just God saving somebody. It wasn't me having any kind of power. How I was able to stand there, I don't know, just happened, probably because of being young and brassy and fearless. Yes, uh, bring, uh, you got the mic. Go ahead, Ryan. I was kind of thinking about when... Peter healed the layman at the temple and the crowds were gathering around him and it says in Acts 3 12 and when Peter saw it he addressed the people men of Israel why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we good have made point. him walk very good reading that, that gives an astute reading you're right I should have known that and I probably would have said that but I had too much stuff up here Oh, I'm, I'm going to be a great man of God. That's poison thoughts. You don't want that. Poison in my own mind. Look how powerful the gospel is. That's what we should believe. Is that right? Yeah, what was the verse you read, Ryan? It's Acts 3.12. Acts 3.12. It's not our power or piety. That's a good one. I should have had that in my article. Well, then uh, the rest of the article is about why I got out of the deliverance ministry, but they don't read far enough to get to that. And then they call me and think I can do something. And I can. I can tell them about the gospel. It's what I always do. And some have been saved, frankly, lately. We've been seeing conversions by God using that article from way back when. Say, well, uh, here's the good news. The way out of demons and satanic bondage is through Christ. And you don't just rearrange demons. You go from one domain to another. You were under darkness, the dominion of Satan. And when you believe in Christ, you go to light and the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus. And it's some instantaneous change of domains. True deliverance and permanent. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. So I tell everybody that. There's one sitting in my inbox right now. I got to go tell that to. Uh, over here. Uh, 
I feel like I just need to get this straight now. Repentance is a change, uh, an about face then, a change of mind from dark to light. Yeah, okay, thanks for asking. That's a very good, let's turn to that. I wasn't planning on, but let's turn to Acts 26, 18. And I'll show you something. Whoever gets there first can read it. Acts 26, 18. Maybe you can read it. Go ahead. Hold on. Oh, wait. We got it over here. Scott's got it. Uh, Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Right. Now that Acts 26, 18 is one of the more important verses in Acts. In his book ending earlier in Acts, where it says repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations. And uh, Maryland, that's how that helps us because if you're uncertain about how a term's being used, for instance, by Luke, like repentance, you find where he uses a synonym that says the same thing and it helps you. We, I remember I illustrated that recently. I gave a story to illustrate that. So there's a different Greek word, epistrepo, instead of metanoeo, but it's used in a synonymously parallel way. So to repent and believe the gospel at, at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts is the same as Acts 26, 18, to turn from darkness to light. So to repent and to turn are the same thing. And so it's not exhausted. If people say repent means change your mind, meaning my thoughts are different, but nothing else is, that's um, not taking into consideration the whole counsel of God about what we learn about what repentance looks like. So turning from darkness to light, turning from the dominion of Satan to God, and turning to Christ is the same as repenting and believing the gospel. Does that make sense? Does that answer you, Marilyn? It does? Okay. What well, is an about face? <laughs> and see, that's what happened with that lady that I'm thinking of now, way back in the 70s, it was interesting how instantaneous it all was. The next day, she was totally in her right mind. We see things like that happen. So God still does things. We just don't know how or when. And we can't uh, stir up the crowd to make them happen. We just keep being bold in the gospel. Notice that Grant again is didomy, so he granted signs and wonders through them. And so there's two things. I think there is the uniqueness of the biblical apostles, but also in God's providence, he can use whatever means he chooses to use, but he has revealed what he will use is the foolishness, quote unquote, used ironically by Paul of the message preached. We know what God chooses to use. He can do other things. We've heard stories lately, again, this article and other ones. There are people literally 
contacting us who were in the occult for years and had familiar spirits. Remember I mentioned in my sermon last week that they had those in Asia Minor? Friends, spirits, I quoted uh, Arnold about that. This happened to somebody that we knew. But all of a sudden, the spirits that were their friend and warm and friendly and give them good advice because they have to cultivate the ability to talk these things. God is ruling his universe in such a way as that we're shielded from the spirit world. It exists and it's real, but we're shielded from it, and that's his mercy. We're under civil government. We're not under the sons of God as it used to be. But there are people that cultivate, they want contact with the spirit world. And they cultivate the ability to do that through taking courses and silencing the mind is the main way. But here's the deal. The spirits are still evil. Even though they're telling all these warm, nice, wonderful, fuzzy things. They literally turn on their own followers and start attacking them and harassing them. And I've seen cases where it scared the person so much, they go search for help and come to our website and tell tell us what happened, and we tell them about Christ. Actually, Satan's carrying people into the kingdom. And you might think, why would he do that? Well, these spirits are evil. They can't help themselves. They hate people. But uh, they come as messages of light, but they're really darkness. Isn't this a problem in the charismatic church where people are becoming demon-possessed or oppressed? Well, they're, get, they're getting into that, yeah. I actually was getting a treatment that I get twice a year to keep, helps keep me, keeps this one condition I have at bay. And I started telling about what I was doing. I was studying the Bible as I was sitting there. And this gal came over and wanted to talk, who was one of, a new one that was a worker there. And I mentioned I had just written this article about a neogram, and I was telling what it was. And she heard me mention Sufi, and she said, oh, I just went to a, it was so wonderful. She said, I went to a Sufi meeting, and it was in the basement of a church. Sufi is a mystical form of Islam, Sufism. And she said in this church, they had the Sufis, and they were telling them what they believe and what they do. And they actually had one of the people who can do the whirling. You ever heard of a whirling dervish? That's a Sufi follower of Islam who learns to do this dance where they put their hand up and they spin like a top. That's a whirling dervish. So I'm talking, and and this person is, so now what do I say? I wrote an article warning about it and she's telling how wonderful it is. And then I mentioned something else and she says, oh yeah, I like that too. It's so wonderful. So I don't, what do I, I'm not trying to be mean. So I finally said, well, it may seem that way. What I finally said was, these things have a romantic appeal to people. And I mean romantic, not like a young man finding somebody to marry, but idyllic, like German romanticism as a philosophy. Idyllic, like sitting and watching a sunset by a lake. So you see these other cultures in their Practices and it seems so warm and fuzzy and nice, but it's, it's not what it looks like. There was a person, and I'm forgetting the name of the author, who wrote a book called The Beautiful Side of Evil. 
if you, if you remember that book. Somebody who had gotten saved out of that sort of thing. So God does grant repentance. Yes, uh, Brian. Wow. I'm having a little conflict here. Maybe you can straighten me out. On Uh-oh. the, uh, on the uh, Acts uh, 26.18 that uh, Scott read, open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light. Now, I have a MacArthur study Bible. In his commentary, the first thing on verse 18, he says, unbelievers are blinded to spiritual truth by Satan where I think I would disagree with that. Through the doctrine of election, isn't it God that blinds them? No, I think you're, no, no, I, I think you're confusing a couple of categories, if I can say. Yeah. Okay. Straighten me up. That's a big job. It's a lifelong work. Anyhow, um, here's what, they're, you're, you're, the categories are they're two different ones. One's called the judgment of hardening. And the other one would be just the conversion of somebody who hadn't heard before. Okay? The judgment of hardening is when people, it's sort of like when Jesus said, how, when he laments over Jerusalem, I've sent you apostles, I mean, I sent you prophets and wise men and, and so on. He rejected them all. And then God sent his son, he rejected him. So now your house is desolate. That's the judgment of hardening, which is God blinding the minds because of their continual rejection. But Satan is the one who just has the whole world blinded and calls uh, truth, air, and darkness light. And it's God that opens their eyes to the true light. But if God keeps sending people to tell you that and you get angry and finally say, go away, I don't want to hear you, you may come under the judgment of hardening. By the way, this came up in an email too. Eric and I did a series on eschatology that was broadcast in the podcast for CACministry.org. And Eric and I were talking about eschatology. The entire tribulation period, somebody just emailed me about this, really is a judgment of hardening. The whole period. And I'm not saying nobody's saved there because we know some are. How is the tribulation and judgment of hardening? Because through the entire church age, God has been sending preachers and gospel preachers and, uh, uh, you know, evangelists. And the word of God is going out. And this goes on through the entire church age. And he was merciful. He who restrains will restrain. Now, somebody asked me about that last week. Eric and I talk about that in that series. We believe the restraint is the use of civil government rather than the sons of God to rule over men. That started all the way back in Genesis. Okay? So we don't have to deal directly with the spirits. We can pray for the leaders and appeal to Rome, like Paul did. So for, from Genesis, after the flood, with the table of nations, all the way up into today. There's boundaries God drew out, mentioned in Acts 17, and so we can just deal with humans. We don't have to directly deal with the demons. Humans are, government supposed to restrain evil. Eric's been preaching on that. So the judgment of hardening comes in here. They finally say, we won't have this man rule over. We've had enough of this. 
We're tired of these gospel preachers. We're tired of all these Christians. And we don't like it and we don't want it. And what happens? The rapture. And Eric and I talked about in our series that you might say, well, how will they deal with that? How will they explain that? They'll think that it was the universe expelling all the naysayers. That's what we, that's just conjecture, but it makes sense. Oh, good. We're finally, we were trying to evolve into godhood through this process of theosis. And these negative preachers kept telling us it's Satan. Now they're gone, so we can have what we want. And what happens? They all give their authority. The civil governments give their authority to the beast. And the beast is some sort of incarnation of evil. And the false prophet and their signs and the demons come out of the abyss. That's the judgment of hardening. Okay, you don't like how I'm running my universe? Here. And the thing that's salient is that I think whatever chapter, Eric's better than I at this, but in Revelation, when these things come out and start biting people out of the abyss, you know what it says after that? And they did not repent. They'd rather have demons biting them than have Jesus rule over them. Norm. Um, As far as this hardening, in Romans 1, uh, you know, it goes through this whole concept of uh, people had certain revelation, but they rejected God. And then like three times it says, but God turned them over, gave them over. And the third time it talks about God gave them over to a depraved mind. Yeah, reprobate mind. Yeah, and my question is, that word depraved in Greek, does that have more of the meaning like a dysfunctional mind? Uh, no, it, it means disapproved. Okay. Dis, literally, mean, there's an alpha primitive. means disapproved by God. You don't want to prove, literally, there's a, a, a sort of an antithetical parallelism. Okay. If you look at it in the Greek, it goes like this. They disapproved of God, so God disapproved of them. That's what it says. But it, it doesn't affect the way they think? Yes, it does. It that's was? why they think good is evil and evil is good. Yeah, okay. That's, that's it a does. Point. Yeah, very that's much. Point. So they come to wrong conclusions about things yeah, because exactly. their mind isn't functioning. They reject all the evidence that God created yeah. the world and okay. the world is one. Okay. No, you're absolutely right. That was my question. But there is that thing in the Greek. They disapproved of God. God disapproved of them. Beloved, if you have a chance to believe the truth, do it. Embrace it. Love the truth. It says because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, God will send upon them a deluding influence. Embrace every chance you have before you to lo- learn and love the truth. Nancy. I realize we only have a couple minutes left, but I found myself confused about something all of a sudden. So unbelievers are blinded to spiritual truth by Satan, but I hate to give Satan too much credit. So obviously... The Lord has the ability to save us from that. Right. So I'm just a little confused okay. with let me, let the me power ex- that of Satan has over us. Okay, let me explain it. 
people have di different uh, experiences about what it's like to be under Satan. Some people are just happy people that go through life and enjoy their family and don't need religion. Other people have all kinds of manifestations. Some people actually get active in the occult. Some people get tormented. There's all different things going on. But Nancy, here's the deal. It says in both uh, 1 Corinthians and Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So death is not obliteration, it is separation. So after Adam's sin, all humans are born into this world separated from God and alienated from God. And there are only two spiritual kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. So what it is like for those who stay in that darkness varies. Okay? There's all different kind of ways of being separated from God. You can be a religious person separated from God. You can be an atheist separated from God. You can be a hardened criminal separated from God. And you can be a good, kind Mother Teresa separated from God. It's not good in the ontological sense, but in the relative sense of compared to some humans to others. Some people do all kinds of good deeds that are benevolent, but they're separated from God. Do you see that? that? And so this conversion is going from being in the situation of being dead to being made alive. And made alive in the New Testament means having the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. True freedom of the sons of God comes through conversion and the Holy Spirit. The means God uses is the gospel preached. Wow, we got through two verses. <laughs> but I enjoyed teaching you, and I don't take it lightly that you allow me to do this. It means a lot. Thank you so much for being patient with a person who's gone through a lot in his life, but God is so kind. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your, Lord, your flock and your lordship in our lives. Thank you that you help us understand these things and that we don't lose our boldness in your gospel even when there's persecution. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.